Robert Wilton's philosophy of life was this. Go as hard as you can, as fast as you can, for as long as you can. And Robert Wilton maintained the outward face of indestructibility. It makes sense. Robert Wilton's profession was being a stuntman. And indestructibility was kind of the stuntman motto, if you will. One time in doing a stunt at a monster truck rally, Robert was supposed to repel from a rope and land on a car. The rope got snagged, so he was above the car, so he cut the rope and landed on the car. The next part of the stunt was he was supposed to be lit on fire. The fire did not catch. The car was then supposed to take off out of the arena. Instead, the car took off. It broke too fast, and he flew off the roof into a wooden wall. Afterwards, it was found out that the protect, protective fire gel had not been applied correctly, and if he had been lit, he probably would have died. In relaying the story to a fellow friend and stunt coordinator, he laughed about it, saying, just a bunch of skill and luck that I survived. His friend said to him, maybe God was trying to tell him something. Today, we are going to hear about another dangerous profession. One that caused imprisonment, flogging, even stoning. A profession that led many to die. The profession of an apostle. The question is, what kept him going? Was it the Robert Wilton approach to life? Go as hard as you can, as fast as you can, maintain indestructibility? Was that the apostle's approach to going forward? It's a good question for all of us this morning. What keeps us going through the dangers of life? Is it that indestructibility? I'm tough. I'm going to go as hard as I can, as fast as I can, as long as I can. Is that what sustains you in this life? Let's find out, shall we? What sustained this apostle? And hopefully make you think what sustains you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 all the way through 18. It's printed in your worship guide. You can follow along there. Or you can go to the Bible. <clears throat> but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Hopefully, it, this is the, it's the right passage here. I hope it is. We start at 6. I'm starting at 7, so just deal with that. 7, okay? Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake 
so the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is also for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The word of the Lord. Bridge just joining us. Welcome. We've been going through this letter to the church in Corinth, a church that was planted in this growing city, a major trade place in the Roman Empire. And it was a port city that many, many people in the Roman Empire came to that were looking for opportunity, specifically people that used to be slaves. It was a place for financial mobility, a chance to make it. And in this city came Paul. He came with a message, the message of the gospel. He said that salvation comes from this one that was crucified and raised from the dead. And this church gets traction and people start coming. And it starts growing. And then Paul leaves. And then messages start to come about what's happened to the person that brought this good news to them. That he'd been rejected by other places, humiliated, jailed, stoned. And these other preachers that started to come to Corinth started to say things like, you know what? That message that Paul preached, that's not the victorious life. Don't follow him. Those kind of things shouldn't happen to a leader in this movement. And they became what is known, Paul referred to as the super apostles in a very condescending and sarcastic way. But this started to form a seed of doubt in some of the church in Corinth, and that's part of the reason that Paul is writing this letter to them. And that seed of doubt is the question is, do I want what Paul is preaching? This doesn't look appealing. Do I really want to suffer in this way? Maybe I should listen to what other people are saying, that maybe I should live a more comfortable life, a more victorious life, not a humiliated life, a rejected life, or face this kind of suffering and pain. I'm so glad that we have graduated from those kind of doubts. We don't have that kind of questioning we don't say, oh, their life is more comfortable. They have nice things. Maybe I should live like them. Surely we've all graduated from the middle school feelings, right? Yeah, those girls are mean, but they're popular. Sure, Judy is nice, but she gets made fun of. Do I really want to hang around her? Surely we've grown out of that phase in life, haven't we? 
grown out of wanting what is comfortable, trying to avoid suffering and pain as much as possible. And this is the kind of doubts and feelings that Paul is now talking to. In the previous six verses, we didn't go through it, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we see Paul describes this great thing that has been given in Christ. Here in verse 7, he starts with a but. Yes, this great treasure, Christ, that's been given to us, has been given to into us in jars of clay. A very interesting metaphor that he uses. You see, the jars of clay were a pretty regular thing, found everywhere probably in that age. Containers, as they were used for, for food, oil, water. Pretty inexpensive, sold in the market. And they probably broke pretty often. And they were discarded easily. Discarded more than other things that people maybe found more valuable containers made out of maybe glass or made out of metal. You could think of them as the modern day, as the old time, the modern day would be Tupperware, right? I, I don't know, we don't find much value in Tupperware in our house in this sense that we can never find the right top. <laughs> that they're everywhere. That I go outside and there they are in the sand pit or in the garden. And I'm like, what is going on? And they just melt in the dishwasher at random. And we just throw them out and just get something new. This is what is the most interesting thing. He compares us to those kind of things. To these things that break easily, that are discarded, that are easily gone. That is us. We are jars of clay. He's comparing our fallen bodies, these frail bodies, these minds that sometimes are frail and think crazy things or our emotions. This is like jars of clay. This would make anyone go, really? I'm sorry. Don't compare me to a jar of clay or Tupperware. See, no one in my house says, where's my favorite Tupperware? They say, where's my Yeti? Where's my Hydro Flask? You know, those are things we treasure, right? Those are things that are not melting in the dishwasher, that have a good shelf life, that we even go back and try to find them if we left them somewhere. But here he's comparing us to who we are as jars of clay. It's got to be pretty hard for us after the past two years to admit that we're indestructible. Like a Yeti or a hydro flask. That we have to admit that we are pretty frail. We think, oh, I'm not crushed. But then the internet goes down in your house. I've seen people freak out about that. I'm not driven to despair. Then someone asks you to put on a mask or show a vaccination card. I'm not forsaken. 
Some of it has been isolated in our homes. Things that are normal to us are going out to restaurants or vacations have been taken away and people have felt forsaken. I'm not destroyed, but so many have died over the past two years. Some are so fearful they barely leave their houses and still are isolated because of what is going on. I find there are two ways to go. One way we can go is I'm fine. I'm indestructible. Nothing can destroy me. And I, we just keep this firmness to show I'm fine. It's no big deal. For some of us, we might go the other way. That we are defeated or feel forsaken or crushed. I am nothing special. I am no treasure. Here, Paul is saying that yes, we are fallible. We are broken. We are easily, you know, driven to a place of being perplexed or afflicted or persecuted. But in the midst of this, we have power through this treasure that is in us. I love what Ken Hughes calls this. He calls it Christian realism. You know, for us as Americans, this idea of being indestructible, the stuntman, we have to realize that thinking has really become a myth. It's amazing that even in our culture, as we talk more about mental anxiety and panic attacks and people crumbling, even people in jobs that have a lot of pressure and they should just be indestructible, that they even admit they have weaknesses. That is what Paul was talking about then. This is the reality of who we are as humans. We can be afflicted and perplexed, persecuted, struck down. That is the reality of how we live. And that is what Paul is saying about himself. This great apostle that he feels these things and is honest about them. But at the same time, it does not go all the way. He is not crushed. There is not despair. He is not forsaken. He is not destroyed. Why? Because this treasure is in him. The treasure of Christ. That that power is shown in his weakness. The great thesis of this passage is found at the very beginning of it in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Again, I'll borrow from Kent Hughes. Great job in explaining this and really convicted me. Many of us can read this passage and we can think the equation works like this. My weakness plus God's power equals my power. That is not what this passage is saying. Instead, it's saying, my weakness plus God's power equals God's power. 
That is what Paul is saying. In all of this, God is showing himself in my weakness. His greatness is being shown through. And then in verse 10 through 12, he takes the unity of the jars of clay and the treasure, and he combines them together in the person of Christ. In Christ, there is this dying, this affliction, this despair, this being perplexed. In Christ, there is suffering and there is death. But also in Christ, there is life in resurrection. That in Christ, he defeated these things, that he was not brought to the place of being crushed into total despair and being forsaken and being destroyed. He took those things on and resurrected from the dead. Even in Christ, we see the realism of the broken world. But it did not end there. So that we too can then resonate with Christ in his sufferings and also belong to him in his life and in his resurrection. Now Paul is predominantly in verses 7 through 11 talking about his own experience in his own ministry. But then, as I've said before, he then brings it to the people in Corinth and then in effect bringing it to us. He says in verse 12, So death is at work in us, but life in you. I find this verse pretty perplexing. You would think it would say, So death is at, life, uh, so death is at work in us, but life also in us. No, I think what Paul is trying to say is, what I am facing, this continual dying, this continual suffering, what I'm doing is I am being like Christ. And through the pain and the suffering that I'm going through, I'm still giving the message of Christ to you that through my dying, it would give you life in the message of Christ that I give to you. It is a good question. How do we get this kind of power? This kind of strength in all of these hard things that happen? Maybe I need to apply a certain glaze around the jar of clay that I am. Maybe I need to buy the more expensive Tupperware that doesn't melt in the dishwasher. And some of us then think that's the way that Christianity works. Maybe if I come to church and I take this aspect of Christian moralism, or if I'm a part of this community, or if my kids get this kind of learning, then I will be indestructible. But what Paul is saying here and what Jesus said in John chapter 12 Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Hear this. If you want the treasure 
If you want life, you must die. Die to yourself that Christ might live in you. That is the power that you need. This isn't halfway. This isn't give and take from the buffet. This is giving it all to him. And that is where the power comes from. My weakness plus God's power equals his power in me. David's now. Can we hear me? We good? Okay, good. We're back at it. Um, Paul goes on, and he kind of gives this doxology in verse 15. For it is all for your sake that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. How can Paul sing such praises and thanksgiving in such places that he's endured, even to the point of death? How can he face that kind of stuff? Well, Paul uses Psalm 116.10. Here it's quoted in verse 13. I believed and so I spoke. This would have been a psalm that had been very familiar to them. We read it there at the beginning in the call to worship. Let's say if I said to you all this, who are you going to call? You see, that's how familiar you are to that quote. See, Paul doesn't finish the end of Psalm 116, this, the very crux of the passage, where it says, you know, I believed and spoke. He doesn't finish it because he's letting the people finish it. I believed and spoke, we said it earlier today, that I am greatly afflicted. It's a psalm of David where David is close to death. And that, in the middle of the psalm, is I believed and spoke and I am greatly afflicted, ends with God coming and saving him at the point of death. Here, Paul is using it to say, this has been fulfilled. Fulfilled in what? The resurrection. That all of us, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is um, written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe. What do they believe? Not something figurative. Not something symbolic. No, he actually believes that a person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, came to earth, died on the cross, and rose from the dead. And that one day... All of us will then be in the presence that believe in this, will be in the presence of Jesus Christ in resurrected bodies. And that is what he's saying that the hope is and what he believes will happen to the people in the church of Corinth and himself. I believed. We believe. 
As some of you know, I like to use lots of illustrations from culture. Why do I do this? Is it because I really want to be engaged with you, keep you engaged, be relevant, right? That's the buzzword, relevant, to show you that I'm hip, right? Maybe some of those things, right? But the main reason I use things from culture is because I believe that everything in this world is under God's authority. He created this world. And actually what sin is and the corrupted world is, is when we take what God has made and we taint it. When we use it in the wrong way. So the stories are told in our culture through movies, in literature, in, um, in all kinds of things. These tell a greater story of God's creation, our fallenness, redemption, and then glorification. Some of the stories tell some aspects of that greater than others, God's creation or his fallenness, redemption, or glorification. Now this is not a new idea. This idea came from Tolkien, came from Lewis, used by Schaefer, used by Keller. This is kind of the tradition that I'm in, okay? And it's a way to show people that the story that they're in is actually greater, part of a greater story of a God that created them and made them and wants to be in right relationship with them. A story that has resonated with our culture over the past two years that I thought maybe since so many people are talking about it, I might as well start to watch it, is a show called Ted Lasso. Maybe you've watched it, maybe you haven't. It's a story about an American football coach that goes to England to co coach soccer. And I want to know, what is all the buzz about this show? I'm not going to give it all away. I'm just going to say this. Here's super kind, kind of kitschy southerner, right? That uses coachisms, cliches, American optimism. That then meets what? Cheeky Brits, right? Their dysfunction, their pessimism. And through that all, he wins them over. I think it's resonated in our culture because he shows kindness in what we're all seeing an angry time. And it's showing that this kindness can have an effect. But what I think really makes this show resonate with people is this. He doesn't shy away from the ugliness of this world. This coach takes a beating from people. He's out of his depth. He fails at times. But through all of these things that come at him in, all, in his own personal struggles, he's not defeated. He's not crushed. He keeps going. This is what the New York Times said about this show, Ted Lasso. Being nice in Ted Lasso 
is not a naive denial of the darkness of life. It is a clear-eyed adaptation to it. The series recognizes that nice guys do sometimes finish last. It just argues that other things are more important than finishing last. Have you heard this before? Has anyone heard that story before? That the last shall be first and the first shall be last? That even in the midst of a perplexing world and even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of affliction, good can come and we cannot be crushed? Where are you going, Dan, with this? I all weep at comedies, but this show has made me cry more than other shows I've seen. And the crying comes in this, that the show shows in the locker room this poster. And on the poster is one word, believe. And I don't know if it's the artistic choice of the director. I don't know what it is. Whenever the worst things are happening to Ted and to the team, it shows this thing that says, believe. I won't tell you what happens at the end of season two, but just know this. I started weeping when they showed it. Weeping. Do you know why I wept? Because our culture makes fun of us for belief. What do you believe in? What is this thing? When they believe in something that is so benign, and what is it that you're actually believing in? To win? That a team would come together? As Christians, we don't have an artificial belief. We believe Christ came to earth, lived perfectly, and rose from the dead, and said, I will come again for you. And that in the midst of all your suffering and all your pain, you should know that I will come again. And you are united with me. And you will be in my presence. If a dang soccer team on a TV show can cause people to have a little bit of hope, how much more is our message have hope? True hope. And how much should that change our whining and our complaining and our being perplexed and our being worried? We are not crushed. We are not defeated. We have not been abandoned. The opening credits of the show, it shows the stadium in all these blue seats, and they have graffiti on the seats. And then Ted sits down. 
Ted, this one that faced beatings from the team, from people just denying him, saying all these bad things about him, but he continues on. And it happens, it's just interesting. He sits in the seats, and the seats turn from blue to red. Graffiti on the seats go away. It's communicating that this individual transforms things. He transforms a team, a club, a city, from bitterness to joy. Paul, in his suffering, in his persecution, what does he say? For it is all for your sake, says the grace extends to more and more people and may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. What a picture for us. That when we sit with others in where we work, when we sit with others in where we shop, when we sit with others in our homes, in our neighborhoods, the seats would be transformed, that the graffiti would be taken off, that people would be changed for the glory of God, and they would thank Him, and we would not ourselves, but we'd say, how great is our God, that He transforms our people in a church, in a city, in a world. You see, every story is a gospel story. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is arguing the affliction that he is facing, that some in the church are facing, is nothing with what is compared to come. In chapter 1, he talked about this weight that was on him that he felt with his even a weight that even came almost to his death. And now he uses the same meaning to talk about the eternal weight of glory that will come. One that will be on all comparison. Crazy that he can say such a thing. The weight or maybe a stone being, you know, basically thrown at him to kill him. That he's saying that's nothing to the weight that I'll feel in being the presence of God and his glory. We were talking about this passage as a community group. And many of us agreed if someone called our suffering a light momentary affliction, we would like to punch them in the throat. Especially after the past two years that we've experienced. Don't call it some light momentary affliction, please. My heart has been heavy this week. 
for those that work with refugees in our city at World Relief, the kind of things that they see and the weight that they carry. My heart is heavy for teachers and what they've seen in classrooms over the past year has been brutal. For parents and what they've faced at home, working from home or whatever it might be, for business owners, those that have lost loved ones from COVID. Hear me, please, but more than that, hear the words of the Lord. The weight of that pain is nothing compared to the glory that you will see one day with him. It will be worth something. Keep going. I get glimpses of it. Do you get glimpses of it? Of that weight of glory? You can get some of them on this side of earth. This side of heaven. Here I was in my basement with six guys. Different ages, different professions, different families. And here we are together pouring our hearts to each other, praying for each other, encouraging one another, loving one another. And sometimes I thought right there, it's a crazy thought, I said, these guys all came from different nations. My friend Clint, he's from Finland. And one of these guys, his family, is, his heritage is German. Mine is British. How did it come to a place where nations that used to maybe be at war each other or in different places, how did it come to a place where these six guys in this moment of history with different families and different experiences, different financial backgrounds, would all be in my basement encouraging one another, loving one another, pouring out their hearts to God? Could it be that God organizes all of history and all of life so that one day there will come a day that it will all be in his glory and that we might not see it now but one day we will see the grand picture of why we had to suffer working with refugees why we had to suffer working at a school why we had to suffer working with a child that might have a disability why we had to suffer in a marriage that is difficult. Why we had to face these afflictions. They are nothing to the weight of glory that will one day come. And he will come and show us. Things that are unseen will one day be seen. Well, Robert Wilton, that stunt man, he finally died to himself and his ego. And that friend, that stunt man coordinator that told him maybe God's talking to him was a Christian and shared the gospel with him. And Robert Wilton accepted Christ. Many of his colleagues scoffed at it and said it was simply because his fear of the job and death and when tragedy really hit, he would abandon God. 
where Robert Wilton buried his 19-year-old son. Robert Wilton buried his newborn daughter. And he said this to these things. God never promises us a life without pain and suffering. However, he more than sustains us through challenges. From the tremendous joy of a beautiful 20-year-old daughter to the depths of deep sorrow, my life attests to the truth that absolutely nothing can separate me from God's love. And that son man that thought he was indestructible finally said, I'm a jar of clay. And what makes me strong in the most horrible tragedies of my life is the treasure of Jesus Christ.